The reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verses 1 to 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way, the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, we, uh, as Thomas said, we, uh, this is our penultimate series. Am I on? Yeah, I am. Yeah? No? Yes? Well, I keep talking. There I am. Hello. How are you? <laughs> uh, this is our penultimate uh, sermon in this series. So last, uh, next week we will finish things up. And um, today we are uh, covering this first section of uh, 11. Um, and this morning I want us to just start off by asking ourselves a question of, uh, a question of vantage point. Um, if any of you are photographers or, I mean, we have smartphones, so we're all photographers now, right? And I've just insulted the proper photographers in the room. But when you think about taking a picture, one of the most important uh, uh, where you start off with is, is your vantage point, right? It's composition. How will I frame uh, the picture that I want to take? From which vantage point will I take it? And the composition of a, of a picture uh, can really change um, the, the feeling, the emotion. Uh, it, it'll set a different scene, uh, whether it's taken down low or from great heights. Um, all of these different things. Perspective, composition, how we frame the world is really important in photography, but it's also really important in life, isn't it? Um, and so this morning, I want us to ask ourselves, where do you stand to look at at the world? From which vantage point are you trying to frame the world in which you are observing? Um, and we all get our perspective from somewhere, right? Part of uh, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is just it awakens us up to the reality of the world as it actually is. Uh, one of the refreshing things about this book is that it really pulls no punches, uh, especially next week we'll see. It just, it just tells us how the world actually is, for good or for bad. And so we all have uh, a certain perspective in which we approach things. Um, we all get our perspective from somewhere. Um, maybe it's the paper. Maybe it's uh, the TV or, or the news. Um, I'm old enough to have lived before uh, social media. That's not, um, a lot of us have. But I'm also old enough uh, to remember uh, what news used to be like in the good old days. Um, before there was 24-hour news cycles. There was a point where the TV just stopped and was done for the night. And you just went to bed because there was nothing else to do. Um, and so they would end with like the national, in America they were like, end the day with like the national anthem and then that was it and then it was just like static until six o'clock in the morning and news basically was the uh, presentation of information right so here are facts 
Here are some truths that have happened in the world, and there you go. Here's the information for the day. And uh, now we kind of laugh and chuckle at that because that is nowhere near how we uh, gain information. Now we are constantly bombarded with information. Uh, There's 24-hour news cycles, uh, which means that you have to constantly come up with content. Um, And so it's not just a presentation of facts. It's a presentation of commentary alongside of those. And so now we uh, want to discern uh, which outlets will I get news from? Which outlets will I get my information and sources from? And there's official ones and there's non-official ones, right? We get social media now. We, we all are news presenters. We can all have an opinion on things. We can all present these things. Uh, we have our friends. And so we are, are gaining a perspective on the world um, from somewhere. And the question then is, from what standpoint do you process everything that you see and experience? Um, if you're into football, you process that from your team's perspective, do you not? Um, or Tim, Tim and Leanne are here. But they, they, Tim is a, is a Spurs fan, Leanne is a Man United fan. And whilst they both are fans of football, they see those from different perspectives. How they manage that under one roof, I'm not sure, but they seem to do it so far so good. And so we, pers- we, 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 we engage with different parts of, of our life from different perspectives. And some of them are trivial um, and fun like football. But then we have the matters of like death and life. And how should we view those things? Ecclesiastes is part of uh, the Bible's wisdom literature, a certain genre of literature that we find. And part of the Bible's uh, wisdom literature is, is a it's part of the means that God uses to change our standpoint, to change, to radically shift our perspective at how we look at the world. Left to ourselves, we tend to think about life from the perspective of youth, from beauty, from success, from our career, mostly from personal happiness. This is how we process and view the world. But we've seen this, the teacher, uh, Koheleth, uh, the, the preacher as it's interpreted in Ecclesiastes. And once again, he invites us to think about life from a different perspective. And one of the most per, uh, pervasive perspectives that he asks us to think about life from through the book of Ecclesiastes is from the perspective of death. Right? We saw a few weeks ago, stand by the grave to think about life. We're going to see next week even, again, this theme of sit with the old to think about youth. Change your vantage point a little bit. Think about life under the sun from above the sun. Think about time from the standpoint of eternity outside of time. And so today... Uh, The preacher in Ecclesiastes asks us this question, where do you stand to look at the things that you don't know about your life? What about the things that you don't know about your life? How will you think about those? What is your perspective on what is out of your control? We all have our perspective on what we think is in our control, the things that we have control over within our lives, but what about the, the unknown? What about the things that are out of our control. The prevailing wisdom of our day would say this, well, look at what you do know, look at what is in your control, and what is certain, 
if there are things that are certain anymore, and that will help you cope with what you don't know. But Ecclesiastes this morning, the preacher flips it, and he's going to invite us to turn it on its head and say, look at what you don't know. Oh, sorry, look at what you know from the perspective of what you don't know. Maybe the things that we don't know, and as we become aware of the things that we don't know, will actually shape the way that we look at the things that we do. And once you know that there are things that you don't know, once you know that there are things that you will never know, does that change the way that we think? Does that change the perspective on what we do and what we do know? And so this morning I want to look at, um, I want to start off by looking at three things that we don't know from the text this morning. Um, In verse 2, We're going to kind of um, go through the text and then go back through the text, okay? So we start off, it says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. We'll come back to what moldy, soggy bread has to do with anything in a second here. Um, But second, give a portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. You don't know what may happen. You don't know when disaster may strike. That's part of why it's a disaster, Disasters are pretty tough to plan for. They're unpredictable. We don't want them, uh, and yet they come anyway. We know patterns. We know cycles, right? We know seasons. We know it will rain, but we don't know if it will flood. We don't know how much it will rain. Um, I'm, I'm at this weird point in my life now where uh, I have things in my diary for the summer of 2023, now, as a kid, I couldn't even, like, the year 2000 was, like, the future. And then it was, like, 2020. And I have things in my diary now for 2023, like, five years from now. I know what city I'm going to be in in July of 2023. And that's kind of maddening. It's kind of bonkers. But there's a massive asterisk next to that event, isn't there? Because something that far away certainly is like, well, Lord willing, I will be at that event. 2023 is still far enough where it feels like something could happen between now and then. Like, one of those things could be my death. (laughs) Hopefully I'm alive in five years. I'm not that old. But there's plenty of people who die before 50. But here's the reality of that. When we think about it from that perspective, every future event in my calendar and yours should have an asterisk by it, Lord willing. Five years, you're like, okay, that's acceptable. But what about, like, tomorrow? There's no guarantees, is there? The future is unknown. We just don't know how this is going to be. Look at um, James chapter 4. James is going to give us some of the same wisdom that we see here um, from the New Testament. We go about making our plans, but in James 4, 13, he says this. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So, hey, Lucas, James would say, you who have that thing in your diary from five years from now. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. What is he just describing there? What would be the Hebrew word for what he's just described? Hevel, good, you guys are all amazing Greek students, right? Your life is Hevel. This isn't just Solomon. James, the, the half-brother of, of Jesus, says the same thing. You're making all these plans, but you don't even know of tomorrow. We're not even sure. There's no guarantee 
Your life in the grand scheme of things is hevel. It's like a mist. It's like a vapor. It appears and then it's gone. In verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. James says it's actually arrogant for us to be so confident in making plans in the future without that asterisk, without that caveat of if the Lord wills. It's a recognition of I am not in control of my future. I don't know my future, but there is someone who is in control and there is someone who does. And so we will make plans. You should make plans. Making plans isn't wrong, but it has to be with this perspective of what I don't know. And what I don't know is the future. We see patterns, we see cycles, we can make our best guesses. This is what uh, people in, in investment banking do, right? They take your money, they invest it with kind of prevailing wisdom, and some of those are kind of safe bets, bonds and things like that that will mature slowly over time. They're low risk because we kind of know some level of kind of predictability and return on your money. But then there's high risk investments as well. And they're high risk, particularly because you don't know. Like we, we absolutely aren't sure what's gonna happen with this. You might get a massive return on your money, a windfall, or you could lose everything. <laughs> high risk particularly because we're just not sure of the future. And so Solomon will say, the wise person understands what they don't know, the future, and will keep that in mind as they are planning. The second thing that we don't know, the second thing that we don't know is, is we, we actually don't know how to do that, which only God can do. Look in verse 5. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. There's a lot that we know, obviously, now that they wouldn't have known back in Solomon's day. We have 3D or, I think, 4D imaging now within the womb. Um, we, we can know a lot through science of how babies come together and how they're made. We know all those sorts of things. But there's some little things that we don't know, right? We don't know how, this, he, how, how the spirit of a person actually animates a body in that sense. Interesting, isn't it? The way that he views a child within the womb is just as a person with a spirit, not just a clump of cells. Already the recognition that life, that we are made in the image of God, um, even as an aside here. In the same way that we don't know how our personality, how our spirit comes to us in the womb, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. This is really similar to what um, the, the journey that, the, that God takes Job through. If you remember that, if you want to turn, you can turn to Job 28. Um, do you remember Job, the story of Job? Um, Satan comes to God and says, Job only is faithful to you because you're so good to him. Um, so God called Job one of the um, most righteous, uh, faithful men 
um, of his day. He was also one of the wealthiest men of his day. And Satan says, that's why he's faithful to you is because you're so good to him. Let me take everything away from him and then let's see how, how his faith stands up. And the Lord allows Job's faith to be tested in this way and he loses everything. Um, no fault of his own. And Job builds his kind of case against the Lord. Um, as a lawyer would for an innocent person who has experienced injustice. And God allows Job to go on and on and on. But eventually then it's time for um, the defense to make his case. And listen to some of the questions that God asked Job in chapter 38 and verse 12. God says to Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 18, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. Like, you tell me. Where is the way of the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory. That you may discern the path to its home. Verse 31. Uh, Verse 30. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? He's speaking about stars in space. Verse 33, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rules on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Job starts to get asked questions, and the answer to those questions are, I don't know. And God is reorienting Job's understanding of who he is and who God is. Job quickly gets a tour of his ignorance. Questions that he he just doesn't understand. God educates Job on the unfathomable depths of divine knowledge. It's interesting that he mentions a few constellations that are here. In 2004, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope um, locked in on one little tiny section of sky. Um, scientists had this kind of dark section in, in the night sky that they hadn't really experienced. And for 11 days, they trained Hubble's um, lenses on this one little tiny patch, one little tiny square of sky. And when the images came back in just this one little tiny section of sky, what they saw was 10,000 gal- galaxies with an estimated 100 billion stars in each of those galaxies. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but 10,000 times 100 billion is a lot of zeros. And that's just one little tiny, like, stamp-sized section of the sky from our perspective. And God starts to ask Job these questions. Are you the one who controls the ordinances of the heavens? We are just estimating the amount of stars in the space. And God says, I've named them all. I, I can tell you their names. <laughs> Do you have time? <laughs> no, you don't. You, your life isn't long enough for me to name all the stars and tell you all the names of the stars. And this is exactly the point, isn't it? 
God is asking us, if you can't know what I know, Job, how can you level charges against me based on what you know? You don't have all of the information. You don't stand outside of time and space. You're not eternal. You're not omniscient. You're not all-powerful, all-knowing. And under the sun, which is our perspective from Ecclesiastes, believers learn, even through pain, to be deeply content with not knowing some things. With not knowing some things. There's actual joy to be found in not knowing Imagine, if, you, imagine if, if God was a God that you could fully understand. What, is that, what does that make you? And what does that make him? If there's no mystery, if God's fully understandable, then we are essentially like God, are we not? There needs to be, there must be things about God that we don't know, even by definition. To try to know all there is to know about everything to know it in all of the ways, to know it at the right time that we need to know it, to have all the data in front of us is to try to gain control, to try to gain a control that Ecclesiastes is teaching us to surrender. Trying to know or pretending to know is actually know everything. It's actually foolishness, not wisdom. No, don't mishear. Uh, knowledge, intellect, uh, a deeper understanding of how the world works. This isn't an anti-science, anti-intellectual rant that he's going on here. Not at all. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. The more we actually understand how our, our world works, the more we understand, one, who God is and the intricacies of, of his design, but the more we know, the more we know that we don't know. <laughs> like that, That's kind of how it works. These things should lead us to further awe and worship and to further exploration and to further trying to, to gain knowledge and understanding, yes. But we do that humbly. We do that understanding that we are creators, that there is a creator, and that gap will never be filled with knowledge. To try to know everything that God knows is, is the original sin, is it not? This is exactly what Adam and Eve are trying to achieve. God's holding out. There's stuff he knows that you don't know. You can be like him and know everything. Which is why James calls us a, an arrogance that we just have as human beings. We can figure stuff out on our own. We just need to be enlightened more. We just need more data. We need more information. We need more time. And if we have those things then eventually we can figure it out and be like God. And Solomon in his great wisdom is reminding us again, there are things that you just can't know. Third thing that we don't know is that we don't know how to guarantee success and we don't know how to always ultimately avoid failure. Look at verse six. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Right? <clears throat> He's saying, hey, work in the morning, sow your seed, but your seed might fail. The crop might, might fail. 
You might not have enough rain. You might not have enough sun. The conditions might not be right. And so diversify your options as well. We all want to succeed in life. No one aims at failure. No one, no one sets out to try to fail at the endeavors of life. We all want to achieve. We all want to have our, our work mean something. We want to leave a mark after we're gone. Nothing wrong with any of those things at all. And yet, ultimately, we don't know whether we will hit the mark. We don't know whether we'll be accepted or if we fall short and fail. Partly because the metrics keep changing on what is successful and what is not. Many people progress through GCSEs, go to uni, kind of have their career planned out, this whole career path, only to find themselves out of work before they've even begun. Markets change. Industry changes. That there's no such thing as really a job for life anymore. There used to be. Not anymore. Right? You can do everything right. You can do everything by the book. And it still not be successful. It still fail. This is the wisdom that we see in Ecclesiastes. This is how life works, is it not? And so he says, be smart in that. Um, put your hand to a few different things. You can have a plan B. You can have something to fall back on. We can't put all of our eggs in one basket. And so how then should we live in light of what we don't know? Because there's a lot of what we don't know is there. How should that change us? What's the perspective this is what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is asking us to do. Hold on to these three things that you don't know and walk over to my perspective and see this from a different angle. And so here's three things that we can see in light of the things that we don't know. First of all, wise living means a life of holding loosely to life and possessions and living a life of generosity. Let's say that again. It means living a life of holding loosely to our life and our possessions and living a life of generosity. Look at the commands that we see in the first two verses. Cast and give. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, there's several things that are happening here simultaneously which often happens in wisdom language. So let's just walk through this and try to make sense of this. What's this idea of casting bread on the water? Um, as a kid, I never understood this verse. I literally thought it meant like taking bread, like you'd feed the ducks and throw it on the water. And then you find it later, I'm like, that doesn't work. Like it, it gets all soft and mushy, like ducks eat it. Like how are you gonna, I, he's not talking about a literal throwing bread, a loaf of bread on the water here. It could mean a, a couple different things. Um, one, it could mean actually sowing seed um, in a floodplain. So what they would do uh, in this time period is as the Nile would crest its banks and, and flood, as that water would recede, they would cast out um, their, their seed, their bread, as it were, upon. And then they would, after many days, after a season, they, it would return to them. So this is a, it could be a, a farming kind of agricultural motif he's using. <clears throat> or it could be um, sea trade, literally taking your, your bread, your grains, um, sending it out on ships, which Solomon did, if you read through the history of that. Um, Solomon had boats that he would load up, and it would be three years before they would return. It took three years for them to, to 
do all of the trade that they would do and then come back with that. So there's, there's this casting your bread out on the water and for many days it will return to you, right? There's a return our, on our investment here. And so there's a patience that's required as we wait on these things. So we're to, we're to cast, we're to, we're to actually um, take our goods, our possessions, our things that we can invest in life, and we're to actually put it out there. And the second imperative then is to give. And it's not just, it's, it's a certain kind of giving, um, and it's a generous kind of giving. As we see in, in the Old Testament over and over, and even in the New Testament, um, seven is this number of kind of completeness or perfection that's used. And so he says, give um, to seven portions. No, to even eight. This is like a complete, a perfect kind of giving and then some on top of that. It's seven plus one. It's more than completeness. It's a, it's a giving sacrificially. Um, God's people in the Old Testament, um, how they worked that out is really clear, right? They had these commands as the people of God, as a nation state, as it were. This is Old Covenant. This is not what we live under now. We'll come in a second. But then they gave 10% of their first fruits and they gave that to the storehouse. They gave that to the tabernacle, Right, so that would be like given to your local church. And that was for the local ministry uh, of the sacrifices, of temple worship, all of those sorts of things. It facilitated the, uh, the worship and the gathering of the people of God. And then on top of that 10%, uh, they had, uh, so that was called the tithe, the 10%. And then on top of that, they had offerings. And so there were special times of the year that they would give offerings that were more targeted. They would give to the poor, um, they would give uh, to certain kind of feast days and, di- and different things like that. So they would, they would give in multiple different ways that was there. And those are required uh, for God's people under the law um, as this ethno-nation state of God's people. Now we're in the new covenant that Jesus institutes. And as we see in the new covenant, um, Jesus fulfills all of that. And so we don't have the same kind of... Uh, tax, as it were, uh, that the people of God had as the nation of Israel. And we don't have the same kind of requirements that are on us now. Um, but Paul would say that we, that we're not under law, we should give joyfully and that we should give uh, sacrificially, that we should give not under compulsion, but out of willingness, that we should give proportionately, that we should give. So all of these kind of principles are still there as a measure of God's grace how would we give less than what was actually required by the law? Or would we give more graciously and more generously? How that works out for us is, uh, obviously we don't have a temple anymore, we have a church, um, and you should be giving those first fruits to God's work here. Some of that's really unsexy kind of stuff, right? Like the lights actually work today. Well, some of them. Those are all getting replaced in the next coming weeks. Yay, yay. Um, within uh, that. So there's electric bills, there's staff that have to be paid that actually um, help move ministry along. There's, you know, the building stuff that goes on. We try to um, um, steward those things well. And then there's the more exciting maybe part of, of what happens through your giving. Part of that is through church planting, right? And so we've mentioned already this morning, um, some of those funds have gone to help us plant another church in the city um, with that. Um, we've been meeting um, to start to formulate the new budget for this next year. 
And we're excited about that because we're getting to do things in this year's budget that we haven't got to do before. Um, as a church plant, most of your money's kind of focused on you, right? Getting things up and running. Can we build a stable foundation of which to build upon? And this is the year that we actually get to build upon that in ways that aren't just centered on village. Yes, we're going to plant another church here. Um, we also get to um, support someone from within our church um, with a ministry that we'll send out. We'll tell you more about that as we come. We're hoping to uh, support a Turkish pastor um, in a desperately needy country. Um, we support the work of uh, Walkway in, in many different ways through benevolence, um, the things that actually go out from this building. And so we're to live generous lives. Why? Because the future is uncertain. Because we're not guaranteed everything. Because it's not a, a timeline that is just out locked in. Yes, there is risk. But Solomon says, don't be paralyzed by that. Rather, because life is uncertain, live, generos live generously now. Jesus uh, reinforces the same wisdom, right? He tells the parable of the talents. Um, three different people. One person was given one talent, a measure of, of, of resources. One person, five. One person, ten. And the master gives them these talents, and then he goes away on a journey, and he expects them to take those talents and invest them and get an investment upon return. And so when he comes back, the person that was given ten Turned that into 20. The person who was given five turned it into 10. And he tells both of them that they're good and faithful. But the person who had won was paralyzed in fear. Was afraid of maybe losing it. Was afraid of maybe not doing exactly what the master wanted. And so what did they do? They buried it and just waited. And when the master came back, they didn't have anything to lose. They gave back exactly what the master gave them. And yet Jesus says the master calls that person wicked. Why? Because they were giving something to steward on behalf of the master and were so paralyzed in fear of not doing anything, of, of maybe doing something wrong, that they didn't do anything. And Jesus says, the time is short. <laughs> I've given you uh, resources to use now precisely because we don't know what the future is. We don't know when your resources run out. You don't know when your life, you have to give account of your life. We don't know when Jesus may return. He tells it even more strikingly in uh, the book of Luke in chapter 12. Um, let's just read um, this parable that Jesus tells in Luke 12, 16. It says, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, is that not advice that Solomon's given us already in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes? Almost the exact words, right? Eat the food that you have. Enjoy it. Be of merry heart. Live in the present. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, 
Whose will they be? Now, is that not what Solomon's been telling us? It, almost exact words. Like, your stuff that you're saving isn't going to be yours. And you don't know who's going to get it. Some fool might waste it all, which is what his son did. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus calls him a fool because his night would be required. This night his soul would be required. And he was laying up treasure for himself. And he wasn't generous toward God. It's a great mistake to think about our life, our wealth, our possessions, as if we can somehow predict the future. You can't. You can't, says Jesus. He says, you're a fool to think that way. And so be rich toward God now. Mark 8 gives us some of these same kingdom economics. This idea of the upside down kingdom. It comes in ways that we don't expect. It comes in ways that are counterintuitive at times. Jesus feeds 4,000 people with hardly anything. Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they only had one loaf with them in the boat and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven of the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? There's economics of the kingdom of God that are different than the economics of, of, of the world. What seems like very, very little in the kingdom on earth. Jesus takes and uses and multiplies it thousandfold, five thousandfold, four thousandfold. And what we think is enough to live on for the rest of our lives, Jesus says, You're a fool. In Luke 11.31, Jesus says, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And he's referring to himself. We've learned a great deal from Solomon and his wisdom, but Jesus actually says there's some, something or someone greater than this coming, and it's himself. And Jesus isn't better than, than Solomon because he repeats the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. It's because he actually embodies it himself. It's because he actually lives it out perfectly. It's because he's, he's, he's the physical embodiment of how it actually is to live life, not under the sun, but connected to God above the sun. Look at John chapter 12, verse 24. The embodiment of what we're speaking about here with Jesus. Jesus says these words, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears 
much fruit. Whoever loses his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What does Jesus say? Take the best of who you are, the best of what you have, and give it away. And this is exactly what Jesus does. The, what's the grain that goes into the ground that produces the seed that he's referring to? It's himself. Jesus doesn't give him a portion of himself. Jesus gives all of himself for us. The grain of sand that goes in produces a whole wheat that can feed more than what one grain can. This is exactly what Jesus does. He gives all of himself, dies, is buried, rises again, and nourishes literally millions of people that find life in him. This is what we are called to do individually. It's what we're called to do collectively. There's a part of me that doesn't want to plant another church in Belfast. There's a part of me that doesn't want to send friends away and see them less frequently than I get to now. Let's just all stay together. Let's just build this one thing. Let's just tear down this building and build a bigger storehouse. But that's not the way of Jesus. You give away your best. And trust that God blesses you for that. And they in turn do the same. And hopefully we get to do it again. And God takes what is something small and little, six people in a living room, and hopefully continues to multiply that for the good of other people and for the glory of, of Jesus. But here's the thing, giving like this actually costs. Giving like this hurts a little bit, but that's how you know you're doing it right. If it doesn't hurt, if it doesn't actually cost, we're not doing it right. Now, I want to be careful because the Bible isn't anti-wealth, okay? It's not anti-wealth. We see loads of rich people in, in the scripture using their wealth for the kingdom of God. Lydia, um, a successful businesswoman in the New Testament, is wealthy enough to own a house big enough to host a church in it. Phoebe um, is, is one of the main benefactors of, of Paul's ministry. Is able to um, fund much of the work that we see Paul and the rest of his team, including Phoebe Endeavor. And Job, we've already looked at, wealthiest person on the planet, and God calls him the most righteous man on the planet. God's not anti-wealth. The Bible isn't anti-wealth. It's not anti-planning. We're, we're told to like consider the cost if you're gonna build a tower. If you, if, you, if you have these endeavors in life, you should plan that out so that you, you don't get halfway through a building project and you can't complete it, and everybody looks at you and calls you an idiot. Right? So there's, there's a place for planning. There's a place for wealth. What the Bible is against is greed. What the Bible is against is hoarding. What the Bible is against is trying to pad out my life so that I'm so comfortable for the rest of my life that I can just kick back and say, relax, eat, drink, be merry. Your life is set. And not think about how to actually live my life and use my resources for the good of other people. To actually give away those resources. 
for the good of others, and for the glory of God. And so be generous people. We are called to be a generous people. This is what Jesus says. If you actually follow me, this is what it'll cost. You'll actually have to take up your cross. You'll have to give your life away. But it's in the giving away of your life that you actually find it. And so we're generous with our money. We're generous with our time. I'm tired of the kind of memes that are floating around that, you know, like, oh, someone cancels. And you're like, yes, I just get to stay home and Netflix on my own now. You're like, there's, okay, I get it. There's a time for like relaxing and all of that. But we're just like discipled in the way where like me time is the best time. And it's just not true. That's not true. We were made to be in community with one another. Use our home for hospitality, for the good and the advancement of the kingdom of God and for the gospel. And so we give away and we actually find. We die to self and we actually live. And if we remember, Ecclesiastes has told us we can't take it with us. Quickly then as we wrap up. Secondly then, he wants us to see, and these, these are shorter than the, the first one. Wise living means neither success or failure is ultimate. Our life doesn't hang on success and it doesn't just get destroyed with failure. None of those things are ultimate. There are better, more important things to do than succeed. And there are far worse things that can happen than to fail. And so neither of them are ultimate. Look at verse 6. In the morning, set your, uh, sow your seed. In the evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. We should aim for success. One way that we do that is to diversify. Don't be a one-trick pony. Sow your seed in the morning. Have a plan in case that fails. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, he's told us throughout the book, success is better than failing. So failure isn't set as a virtue. But if our plans fail, it doesn't destroy us. Our life isn't built upon these things. Verses three and four. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. What is he talking about here? There's some people who look at the inevitability in life. Big clouds produce rain. It's inevitable. Clouds come, it's gonna rain, I'm gonna plant my seed, it'll grow. There's other people then who look at the randomness in life. Well, this tree fell down. The wind blew it over. I wasn't expecting that. Some see only inevitability for success. Some see only the risks and are fearfully paralyzed. We can be so paralyzed by our failure that we never risk or try anything. Or we can be so driven by a desire to succeed that we only focus on one thing. I think what Solomon is calling us to here is a life uh, of, of gospel risk, a life of, of, of generosity. One that we're not afraid to actually use what God has given us to, to use. Um, if you remember in the famous movie Braveheart, at the end, William Wallace is getting ready to be executed and Princess Isabella offers William Wallace this anesthetic to kind of numb the pain uh, and he refuses it. And she says to him, you will die, and it will be awful. And do you remember his response? This epic response. He says, every man dies. I was going to try this in a Scottish accent, but I'm, I'm, 
I better not to. He says, every man dies, but not every man lives. And that's true. This is, this is the words of Jesus. You can, you can so try to live your life under the sun that you actually don't live at all. Or we can enter into life above the sun and live a life that's countercultural, live a life that is radically generous and actually find our life. Jesus tells this parable of a man who finds uh, a treasure in a field, but it's not his field. And so what does he do? He sells everything that he has, liquidates everything he has, does whatever he has to do to scrounge up enough money to buy the field. Why? Because when he buys the field, he gets what's in the field. And the treasure in the field was worth far more than what he started off with. Buy the field is what Solomon is telling us here. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 16. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The call here that Solomon is calling us to is a life fully alive to what the kingdom of God is doing now and participating in that. Taking risks for the sake of the gospel. Not letting a fear of failure or obsession with excess keep you from a radical life of generosity for the kingdom of God. And then lastly, the theme that is written throughout this book, and I think underlined here, though not explicitly stated, is that wise living is its own reward. Underlying these verses is the preacher's belief that the reward of life is not locked in, in uh, it's not located in places that we assume it is. We can think of our lives and the gifts that God gives us to use to gain further rewards. So God gives us food, he gives us strength, he gives us work, he gives us friendship, and we see those as tools to be able to obtain extra reward. But what has the preacher been telling us all along? The work itself is a gift to enjoy. That we're to actually enjoy the life that God has given us now. So that food and drink, enjoy it now. Open a good bottle with a good meal with good friends and enjoy that as the gift. Your friends aren't there to bolster your confidence, your self-image, your security. We don't use people like that. Friends are the gift. Friendship is the gift. And a life fully lived is a life receiving the reward of today that God gives us as a gift that you don't deserve and one that God has given you to enjoy and be generous with. A life unleashed and overflowing for the good of other people and for the glory of God. This is exactly how Jesus lived. And it's why we can actually live this way. We live the way of the master. Jesus gives his life a life of security, a life of riches, gives all of that up, takes on the form of a servant. Why? So that you and I could be rich. That you and I could experience sitting at the right hand of the Father. That we could be rescued out of our, our life of poverty. Which, by the way, that life of poverty often looks like a life of wealth in the world. But the upside down economics of the kingdom is just poverty. Some people are so poor, all they have is money. 
But Jesus rescues us out of that into a life full of riches in God. And then we go out and we live the same life. How could we hoard this blessing that God has given us? How could we just keep all of those things to ourselves? We follow Jesus and do as he does. Spends his life for the good of others and for the glory of, of the Father. And that's what he's called us to do. And so we cast, and so we give, we measure, but we go with a certain kind of recklessness as well, following Jesus, giving and spending our lives for the good of others, for our joy, and for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, just this reminder. We just confess that our lives can be so... Um, off kilter, we can just lose perspective so quickly. Uh, we can just think that things that are so are temporary, we treat them as eternal. Things that really don't matter in the grand scheme of things, uh, we just give so much of our emotional energy to. Um, it causes much of our anxiety, of our sleeplessness. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would uh, reorient us to the right perspective of seeing the world that the way that it's meant to be viewed, not just a life under the sun disconnected from you. May we see uh, all that you have given us as a gift to be enjoyed. May we actually enjoy those things as worship unto you. But we'll, may we do that by inviting others in. May we do that by giving those things away, by offering hospitality, by giving of our time, by not seeing our life as ours. Um, but a life that belongs to you because you've bought it and purchased us with the body and blood of Christ. So Father, as we uh, come to the table remembering that death that has set us free, that death that has made us rich, and Father, may we reorient our life around this table once again and all the full implications of that for our joy, for the good of our community, and for your glory.